Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today on Investment Uncut, we are delighted to be joined by Chief Global Strategist Sir James's Place Wealth Management, Chris Ralph. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Delighted to be with you. Thanks, Chris. So, Chris, what a job title. Would you like to explain to the listeners kind of what that means and who your clients are? Well, it's only a job title I've had since the beginning of the year, Mary. For 10 years, I was SJP's chief investment officer. And when I finally realized that I should be hanging up my boots for that particular role and handed on to a much more able colleague, I had to think up some new job title. And this was the one that I landed on. But actually, it does allow me to spend more of my time thinking about what's going on in markets, what's going on from the macro perspective, and to be able to communicate that to clients. If ever I could have chosen a year when that's been really fascinating, 2020 has been it, and I've thoroughly enjoyed and been perplexed by what's going on from a macro perspective and how that equates to where markets are. And it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, I mean, from following you on LinkedIn, it certainly seems like you've had some absolutely fascinating conversations with all sorts of investors around the world this year. But just to kick us off, Chris, one question that we like to ask all our guests is, what's one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile? Well, I think probably that I'm a huge kite surfer. I love high adrenaline sports, whether it is sort of off-piece skiing. I used to be a rock climber in days gone by. I did have a vague ambition to try and emulate Alex Honnold and climb El Capitan in Yosemite. But I soon realized at my advanced age, that was a ridiculous idea. So I'll stick with kite surfing. And every year I go to Cape Verde. In fact, I was there at the beginning of January. Sadly, didn't do much kite surfing that week because I very quickly got COVID-19 and therefore may be the super spreader in the UK. Here we are, we're recording it now. Oh, no. So it's all your fault. (laughs) Yeah, it's all my fault. Sadly, COVID-19 was wandering around the UK in the middle of December, but I did pick it up rather early. But kite surfing is great. High adrenaline, when you're flying along the water, you can only be thinking of that because the moment you start thinking about what the S&P has done in the past month, you end up in a bit of a mess with a mouthful of seawater. (laughs) Exactly. I suppose hopefully by next January, fingers crossed, we might be towards the other side of this and you might get a chance to go back potentially. Is that the hope at the moment? Well, I hope so. Although I must admit, I was beginning to think that I need to be cutting down my flying because I think it's absolutely right for the environment. And six hour each way flight to Cape Verde is very self-indulgent. So I think I may just have to stick to the English channel. Chris, you were saying before we started recording that you've had a number of fascinating conversations this year with all sorts of investors around the world. What sort of things have stood out from some of those conversations? I think that it's really important to, as one fund manager said to me back in April, stay the course when markets are as troubled as they have been over the past two or three months, that it's very easy to knee-jerk into emotionally driven reactions to market environments. And I think we all recognize that when one is allowing emotions to drive investment decisions, those investment decisions are likely to be inferior to objective and thoughtful longer-term investment decisions. And I remember a fund manager saying this to me during the euro crisis in 2011-2012, that despite the fact that he'd been working in markets for 40 years at that point, that it's never easy. It's never 
comfortable when markets are as volatile as they are. You can be the most experienced investor in the world, still make mistakes, still have that sort of empty feeling in the pit of your stomach, but try and correlate that with being rational and objective and thoughtful about the way in which you go about investing. And when you say stay the course, I think is the phrase you used, which I generally completely agree with. I guess I'm interested in your view on whether that means you should rebalance or whether actually any decision, including a rebalancing decision, is a decision that's then emotionally very difficult to make. So what does that mean in terms of rebalancing? I think it means that as long as one uses the tools that one has available to quantitatively rebalance where it's appropriate, then that removes that decision-making process from being behavioural, being emotionally driven. And that's key. That's it, isn't it? I guess I've been thinking about this a lot recently because it's very sensible advice to say, stay the course, don't be emotional about these decisions, don't make emotional decisions. I suppose we can all sit here and agree that's the right thing. Goodness me, it's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, I do think there's a tendency out there for people who work in finance and investments to say stuff like that, but not actually acknowledge how difficult it actually is to follow through, not always offering people enough support alongside that. Do you think that's a fair comment on that, Chris, or do you see it differently? I completely agree, Dan. And in fact, I think it demonstrates the bifurcation that we've seen through the pandemic crisis of 2020, that speaking to people in the ETF world, what they've observed is trading decisions. I mean, we've seen it on the data that's coming out of Robin Hood over the past couple of weeks, that people have been backing stocks because they've gone up a lot over recent periods of time, rather than this sort of rational objective decision making. So I think you've got this irrationality, this emotionally driven decisions that are often made by private individuals who think that they can work out what's going on in markets. And I compare that to the conversations that I'm fortunate enough to have with clients and with the advisors that we have at SJP, where we have that ability to intercede with a client who may be saying, look, I'm really worried about markets. I want to take it all out today, or I want to put it all in on one particular day. Actually, what the role of the advisor does or what the role that we can perform on the investment side is to say, well, hang on a minute, let's look at this objectively. It's still a very important decision because we feel the responsibility. I think one of the greatest benefits that I have had in my role at St. James's Place is the fact that I do spend a lot of time talking to clients. And it's very humbling when a client says to me, look, you've got to understand, Chris, I've worked really hard to build up this pool of capital. I worry about it intensely. I'm putting a huge responsibility in you looking after it. But hopefully, given the expertise that we can bring to it, given the joint decision-making process that the client is involved in, the advisor is involved in, and that we're involved in, hopefully that gives us a better chance of making a better quality decision. And I think it's the isolationism of making decisions when it's just you choosing stocks or choosing markets or whatever, rather than having a greater number of people involved in the process. That is the difference between the self-directed and the advised proposition. You can even argue that the tendency to want to sell stocks when they've fallen a lot isn't entirely irrational because, of course, we all crave security and stability and we want to be confident in our outcomes. And when markets have fallen, we absolutely don't feel secure. We don't have confidence. And by selling everything, we do get confident in the outcome we're going to get. It's just not a very good one. And we might have paid an awful lot for that confidence. And that is what someone describes to me as the role of an advisor is trying to help someone avoid paying too much for security, which is always the issue in investing. It's just security versus the cost of it. 
Yeah, and I think that comes all about sort of loss aversion theory. You worry twice as much about the amount of money you could potentially lose as the amount of money that you can potentially gain. And those of us who poured over the books by Daniel Kahneman and others think we know what we're talking about. And then actually, it's quite hard to put that into practice when one's in a situation where one's lost money with an investment. So theory and practice is really difficult to make work. And it's interesting as well, isn't it? I think this is probably the case for many industries, but we are investment professionals. And then you look at how our own money is invested. Or for example, I give lots of pensions advice. Is my pension scheme in the right place? Am I contributing the right level? Despite the fact that I know all the facts, I find it really hard to make the decisions when it's my money. So I guess that's where the emotion sort of gets in the way a bit, doesn't it? Well, I completely agree. And in fact, I've got an SJP partner and I have said to him, look, you go away and do what you need to do in terms of managing my money, because to some extent, I'm probably too close to it. And therefore, I may not make good enough decisions for myself as I would do if I wasn't so close to markets on a day to day basis. That's not to say that we don't have some reasonably robust conversations about what's going on. But I think it's important to have that objectivity, have that wise counsel in one's ear, whether one in the fortunate position that we're all in or whether one's a client who is not familiar with financial markets on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so even the experts need help, which is comforting to know, I suppose. I completely agree, yeah. The point you made a second ago, Chris, you were talking about a manager you'd spoken to this year who was kind of saying, yeah, it never gets any easier. You never get away from that feeling. And that's a really refreshing thing to hear, isn't it? I think, because that shows a little bit of humility. And it's just very different from all the sort of talking heads you, unfortunately, you see too much of on the TV who are saying this, that, and the other. The S&P is going down, it's going up, it's going to zero, gold's going to 10,000 or whatever. These incredibly confident kind of prognostications. But it's comforting to hear that some of the best investors out there are admitting that actually it's not easier and there's always that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Well, I completely agree with that, Dan. And if you think about some of the stuff that Stanley Druckenmiller has been saying, an individual with an amazing track record, or Jeremy Grantham's been saying relatively recently, Druckenmiller was saying that he's been humbled by markets recently because he was saying, what was it, a month or so ago, that he couldn't understand the valuations in US technology and that he wouldn't want to own them at those sort of prices. And yet they've continued to rise in value. Jeremy Grantham has talked about investment bubbles. I mean, it's been the subject of his whole career and his incredibly humble about it. I was lucky enough to speak to him relatively recently. He's incredibly humble about the difficulty of knowing not just how to spot a bubble, but when that bubble is likely to burst. And whilst he feels comfortable undertaking the analysis in respect of the former, trying to make that decision as saying, today's the day that the bubble is going to burst, he would admit is damn near impossible. When you've been speaking to managers, and I guess those two included, I guess one thing you've heard recently, which is probably quite comforting, is the fact that they've felt fairly humbled by market movements. Are there any other things that you, I guess, wanted to hear or the sorts of things that you are expecting to hear from managers when they're reflecting on such a volatile period? I suppose taking a step back, what I like to see is a manager who is absolutely sticking to philosophy and process. My colleagues on the investment committee as well, we get really rattled by managers who are clearly displaying behaviours that are very different from what we should be expecting to see from them. So it's actually the sort of consistency of approach that is the most important thing through difficult markets. And of course, that's when it's most difficult to put into practice. So to some extent, Mary, I don't feel that necessarily one should learn a great deal during the event, because actually, as long as the managers are doing what we expect them to be doing, then that's fine. I suppose it's more about after that, after each crisis, whether it's GFC, whether it was the Euro crisis or going further back, how do they self-analyze their decision-making process through the crisis? How do they learn from 
that? And how do they institute further improvements to the way in which they undertake their investment activities on a day-by-day basis to make sure they become better investors over time? One never finishes learning about investment. I'm sure you would both agree with me that one learns each and every day and you look at something and you think, wow, that's amazing insight into what's going on in markets. And that just sort of adds to the pool of knowledge about what's going on. And as long as managers are doing that, but reflective of it and not just being reactive to it, then that feels to me like a positive, good conversation with a manager. And do you feel, Chris, that managers are honest about that? I guess that doesn't necessarily play that well on a glossy pitch deck, does it? To say, hey, guess what? I'm learning just like you and I'm correcting some of the mistakes I made last time around. Doesn't come across that well, does it? Well, I think I am always very wary of information that's shared in pitch books because I'm very much of the opinion that pitch books are created by market departments. They're not really created by fund managers. And I think actually, if you sit down with a fund manager, presumably we'll be doing more of it digitally rather than face-to-face going forward. But nevertheless, I think if you sit down and talk to a fund manager and get to know them a bit, you can have those type of conversations. And if a fund manager is sitting there and doesn't demonstrate that humility, doesn't demonstrate that willingness to learn, doesn't demonstrate a degree of recognition that they're not going to get the decisions right all of the time, then those feel like pretty big red flags to me in terms of future expectations of that fund manager's capability. And we've seen it so many times through our careers of fund managers who've been very successful and then become too self-confident. And that's led to a very sharp reversal of fortune. And I guess that's, again, where it's helpful, the sort of the role of an advisor, in a sense, because you can sit down with a manager and level with them and say, I don't mind if you say you're still learning. In fact, I kind of expect it. Whereas, of course, when they're presenting or pitching to the ordinary person on the street, I suppose, that's not so expert, it's probably much more difficult for the manager to let go of that information. And also, of course, the untrained expert or the sorry, the non-expert isn't going to take that information very well. I was speaking to some clients yesterday and one of the clients said to me, we were talking about a regional manager that we have at SJP and and the client said to me, well, I can see that there's other funds in the sector that have done better than your manager. In fact, we were talking about our North American manager and I was saying, well, I'm sure that's the case because those other managers have got a much higher exposure to technology in their portfolios. We're not buying that past performance. It's about what's going to be delivered going forward that's important. And if we all feel really, really confident that technology is the only game to play in terms of investment in US equities over the next five to 10 year period, then fine, we should go with those sort of managers. But actually, I think what's going to be more important is to be able to understand whether those managers have the ability to rotate out of ideas that have worked really well into new ideas that may not appear to be particularly exciting at this point, may appear to be undervalued, may appear to be unloved. And it is that rotation that's crucially important going forward. And I think that's really, really hard for a private individual to be able to think through and analyze when the sort of banner of past performance is there flashing in lights. And it's very easy psychologically to be drawn in to the potential benefits of owning that type of fund where one is attracted by good recent performance. Yeah, somehow past performance can always be so much more salient than sort of current valuation, can't it? And obviously, they're just two sides of the same coin. So often they are, sorry, not always. So good past performance equals high current valuations and vice versa. Yeah. And I think, Dan, if you look at, for example, some of the value managers that we work with at St. James's Place who have had a torrid time over quite extended periods of time now, does that mean we should abandon them today? 
is value no longer a sensible investment strategy? I tell you what, the more I hear or the more I read articles saying that Warren Buffett has lost it and one shouldn't be giving any more money, indeed, one should be divesting from Berkshire Hathaway, the more I think that we must be getting to the turning point for value. So it's when that becomes the siren voice that Buffett has lost it is the time that he will really start outperforming, as will other value managed. Yeah, well, I was going to take the opportunity to ask you where you stood on the is value dead or alive debate, but it seems like you view out pretty clearly there. You see a turning point for value and you would stick with those managers that have had a bit of a tough time. Well, do I see that the difference between growth and value will continue to rise inexorably? No, I don't. How much can value recover from its current time? Will it be affected over the medium to longer term by ultra low interest rates and therefore making the cost of capital incredibly low and therefore the return on equity that's required for growth shares more interesting? Yeah, I think there is a debate to be had about that. But I think it's all too easy to cast aside investment approaches that have actually delivered incredibly good returns over decades because of a relatively long period of underperformance that we've seen recently. So I guess there are sort of the traditional types of investing, so growth value, etc, that your existing clients will have been tapping into over the years. Have you noticed any sort of new trends in terms of demand from clients? I guess the specific one I'm thinking of, but wanted to ask a slightly more broad question is sort of ESG type focus. I know you mentioned you were trying to cut down the amount you were flying and it's clearly a bit of a hot topic, but is that flowing through into investment demand directly? Well, I mean, I think there's probably two huge themes that have been happening in the investment world over the past two or three years. ESG, responsible investing, is absolutely one, and perhaps we'll come back to that. And the other is the extraordinary growth in index investment. And obviously, with the continued performance of the largest five or six companies in the United States, that is making index a very, very safe place to be at the current time. But maybe it's worth reflecting on responsible investing for a while and the inclusion of ESG factors in investment. I think during 2019, we crossed a watershed where it was no longer going to be appropriate for any fund manager to say, I'm going to have nothing to do with ESG characteristic analysis of my portfolio because I fundamentally don't believe in it. And I think it is beholden on us as a wealth management company that has the very significant responsibility to be looking after a substantial amount of our clients' assets, to actually use that leverage to work with our fund managers and for them to work with companies that those fund managers are investing in. And we've definitely been doing that. So I see it as a movement that to a certain extent has been slightly pushed aside because of the nature of COVID-19 and the pandemic. But I think ultimately, the pandemic will reinforce the importance of ESG investing, because it's just a great reminder that if we don't consider these aspects which may adjust whether it's the economic performance, GDP growth in the global economy, or whether it's the performance in markets over the longer term. Actually, those factors will come back to bite us if we're not careful to include them. And as we sit here today, we don't see any fund managers who are not thinking really hard about the importance of ESG factors right at the heart of their investment proposition. And we're very careful to analyse our portfolios in the way in which our fund managers are thinking about it so that it's not just a sort of a box ticking exercise. We do have to make some progress there. And in the past couple of days, for example, SGP has published its first climate emissions report, which is looking at the climate emissions of all of our portfolios 
values. And generally, it's encouraging that most of them have a lower score than the equivalent benchmark. And that's where we would want to be. So yeah, I think it is really important. I think it will continue to grow in importance. And actually, to some extent, the pandemic and its consequences will only add to the weight of evidence that ESG investing is going to be something we need to be focusing on going forward. Yeah. Do you think that that trend has been simply reflected a broader trend in society or has it been the finance industry that's sort of been driving that? So in other words, has the trend of consumers taking less flights, buying more sustainable products simply spilled over into their investment and that's what they've been demanding? Or is it more come from people in the finance industry pushing managers and putting those products out there? Or is it just too hard to say which of those two things it is? So if I go back four or five years, Dan, I would say that very few occasions when I was in a client meeting would the question of responsible investing, ESG, come up. And in fact, I would posit that the phrase environmental, social and governance factors was not something that many clients had heard of at that point. Pretty much every meeting that I do today with clients, it will come up. And we encourage that. We think it's really important. So I think it's actually more than clients thinking about how much they fly, where they buy their food, et cetera, et cetera, than the sort of broader societal responsibilities that we have. I actually think we are seeing a bit of societal change here, that people are not just thinking about what their longer term futures are in respect of the financial return. It's more of a, well, what's the impact on society? And to me, that's a good thing. And that's interesting, isn't it? The sort of distinction between something that is purely a financial decision and factor and something that's kind of actually for the greater good, I feel that this is where I should be putting my money. And I guess that's where you get the distinction between, as you've said, all of your investment managers should be integrating these sorts of ideas into their thought process. But then taking that one step further is the sort of ESG focused funds or very much active or activist type approaches, impact funds, that sort of thing. Do you find that your clients are particularly driving for that sort of level or is it more just, I want my manager to take all of this into account because all of it's important? Yeah, I think the challenge with that, Mary, is the definition of exclusion with an impact portfolio or a ethical portfolio is different from one client to the next. As some clients are particularly focused on coal, other clients may be very focused on armaments. And that makes it very difficult to run general portfolios that exclude those specific characteristics. Actually, I think it's more fundamental than that. Every fund manager that we will be working with going forward will have to be thinking about ESG characteristics as part of what they do. Indeed, we had a manager that we were quite close to working with, I suppose, going back about six months from today, that one of the principal reasons that we decided to exclude the fund manager from the final selection process was because they were clearly not making a commitment to not just consider environmental, social and governance factors today, but not going forward because they didn't think it was worthwhile. And therefore, I think investors are saying to us, well, actually, across the board, St. James's Place as an organisation needs to be thinking about that. And I think we will be able to exert much more leverage if we do it more broadly across our range of managers, rather than just become very focused on having a narrow range of impact funds that only a few specialist clients want to access. And I think that's certainly the way that we've been approaching that sort of area as well, to be honest, in terms of the clients of ours that have a very specific focus. It's such a bespoke focus that actually a generic fund doesn't quite do it justice and you end up going down the more segregated type route. And there's no point having a huge list of impact funds where only one at a time might be relevant to each group. You sort of need to do that on a case by case basis. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that doesn't mean to say I don't think there is a 
purpose for any of those funds for some specialist investors. And we are seeing a number of climate funds being launched, and I'm sure that will continue. But I think more broadly as an industry, the way in which we're going to affect change is by working from the ground up in terms of the responsibilities that fund managers have and thinking about the way in which they include these factors in their investment propositions going forward. Taking a slightly different tack, Chris, one of the guests I think you said you've spoken to recently is Howard Marks. What are some of the interesting things that you took away from that conversation? Well, Howard is such an amazing guy to be speaking to, and it was a real privilege to have a conversation with him. I suppose what I was trying to do, Dan, was say, well, Howard, you've had a lot of experience of investing in different markets. You obviously come from the lens of looking at fixed income and looking at corporate bond markets rather than looking at equities, which offers a bit of a different perspective, I think. What does that experience tell you in terms of the way in which we should be thinking about how we should be responding to the crisis, where it creates opportunity and what the longer term consequences of that are. And just listening to an individual thing can talk about his experiences of investing over his long career and how he relates current events to previous events, I found absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure if it were possible to have another conversation with him as we approach the year end and say, well, actually, things didn't quite turn out as you expected, because, for example, default rates in corporate bond world, particularly in high yield, don't seem to be spiking up as much as he might have thought when we last spoke. So what have you learned from that, Howard? And how do you think about that going forward in terms of the way in which you build and run your client portfolios? Yeah, that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Because that would really get to this point of how much people are adjusting their worldview and things. Because I suppose you do get these sort of very convicted, very successful long-term investors who have a, just a very clear philosophy, as in value being the obvious one, saying you know, if stocks are too expensive, stocks are too cheap, it's in a bubble sort of thing. And it's one thing to express that philosophy very powerfully, which a lot of people can do. But it's something else, I suppose, to open up as to how you're thinking about that in a changing world where things aren't the same as 99 or 08 or whatever other obvious bubble you want to pick. And you really get a sense of how they're sort of synthesizing the current situation into their knowledge and the frameworks that they've built up. That must be fascinating. Yeah, and it's also how they translate that to colleagues because you know, Howard is not so close to the day-to-day investment decision within Oak Tree, but I'm sure he has an awful lot of influence to investors around him. And it's making sure that they benefit from his wisdom, his experience and his capability to make better investment decisions going forward rather than an individual, whether it's Howard or whether it's Jeremy Grantham or you know whether it's Hamish Douglas at Magellan, just being the sole font of all knowledge and good quality investment decisions. That's another whole fascinating area in itself, isn't it? Because I guess you've been following managers for long enough to see some of these big names build up their business and then kind of sort of step back a little bit and pass it on to another generation. So, I mean, do you have any comments and observations on how that has sort of played out at some of these firms? Some have obviously navigated that reasonably well and created a firm with real longevity to it and others presumably not so much. I think the basic analysis is that it's incredibly difficult, particularly when an organization has been very focused around a particular individual for a successor to come in and successfully follow in the footsteps of that individual. So I spent a good portion of my career at Fidelity and what Fidelity tried to do for a long period of time was to create mini Anthony Boltons. And they tried really, really hard to do that. And Anthony was very involved in that process. But it's actually very difficult to make that work in practice. And however much time Anthony spent with the more junior fund managers at Fidelity, it was just that innate 
I don't know whether it's a gut instinct, that innate makeup that he had that signified him as being an exceptional investor. That's not to say that Fidelity doesn't have some really good investors, but someone like Anthony comes around once in a generation. So I do think it is really difficult. I think it's the perpetual problem of the star manager culture. And I do think it's really interesting that particularly if you contrast fixed income companies compared to equity managers, there tends to be a much lesser focus, even within a business like Oaktree, how it is a really important individual in Oaktree, but he's not the sole decision maker in the portfolios. And you tend to have much more team-orientated processes in fixed income compared to equities that tend to be associated with a particular individual making really important investment decisions. That's a fascinating point, Chris, actually. And what would you put that down to? Just, Just the nature of the markets and what you have to be aware of? There is a big difference between fixed income and equities because one can analyze a company. And I'm not saying it's easy to analyze a company and make a good quality investment decision, but there is a single dynamic that's associated with that because it is reflected in a share price. Whereas if you're investing in fixed income, there are lots of different ways in which you can express an investment in fixed income, whether it is owning a credit, whether it is owning a derivative against that credit, whether it is investing in a sovereign in doing a curve trade, putting a currency hedge against it, et cetera, et cetera. And within that, there are going to be people that are going to be skilled at particular parts of that that don't necessarily have all of the skills to be able to do all of that process. Whereas probably it's easier to identify an individual in the equity world who can at least identify good quality ideas in certain sectors, maybe not in all sectors, And I remember speaking to a manager saying, I'm never, ever going to invest in insurance stocks because I simply can't get my head around them. And actually, I thought that was a positive because he wasn't arrogant enough to say, well, I understand. I understand everything about investment markets, the limits to what he was prepared to invest in. Whereas for that sort of individual investing in a retail share, it's probably easier to translate that understanding and that insight to other shares in other companies in the consumer space, for example. That's really interesting because I guess one aspect of that is the sort of skill set. Another is the behavioural aspect to kind of these sorts of very successful portfolio managers and investors. We've done a couple of other recordings on book reviews, actually, but we looked at the money solved the market. So Jim Simons and also the big short. So Michael Burry. One of the things that I guess came very clearly through those was the fact that these investors that had very strong ideas and they were right and they were very good investors were also perhaps outcast is probably a bit strong, but they were they weren't the norm. They didn't fit a mould. They were very comfortable to be different. And actually, if you're trying to then make a mini version of an existing person, by definition, that mini person isn't going to be their own investor with their own sort of thoughts. And some of that natural thought process is is what makes some of these investors so strong. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. But one's always got to remember for every investment manager who is success, there is an awful lot who haven't been successful, who've taken incredibly concentrated positions, may have thought they were about to be a hero until it blew up spectacularly. And we've all seen them over our careers. And in addition, I think there is certainly an aspect of people being in the right place at the right time, doing a piece of analysis, pursuing that thinking it through and taking positions against it, and then benefiting from that. I've never had a chance to meet or interview him. But if you look at someone like John Paulson, very famous hedge fund investor, he made a series of decisions before the financial crisis and subsequent to it, which were incredibly accretive to his client portfolios. 
but yet since then it's all gone horribly wrong and it does it seems like everything that he touches has gone to lead since then and i believe that most of his assets have now left him and in fact i'm not even sure he's running any money for many external clients these days so just because an investor has had what appears to be a Midas touch through a particular period of time or through a particular investment cycle doesn't mean they're always going to be like that. No, that's a good point. One thing I'd be fascinated your take on is what areas of the markets are different, do you think, today? It's always a classic argument. Is it different this time? What's different? What's the same? And from the conversations you've had with people, what have people highlighted that they think are different in the markets today? Maybe what's been the case for the last 10 or 20 years? I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, that interest rates are not just low today, but they're going to be low for some period of time. And that comes back to the comment I was making earlier about the cost of capital and the way in which people think about markets. And the equity risk premium, I think, is going to have to be viewed in a different way going forward with interest rates as low as they are and potentially going negative. So I don't think we've worked through the consequences of that. And I think that will come through as we go through the next period of time, probably the next five years or so. So that's the first big thing. The second big thing, and it's been incredibly striking how quickly the market plunged, but also how quickly it recovered. And that seems to me to be a factor of the quantitative algorithmic traders piling trade on trade on trade on trade, and also the importance of ETFs. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing that markets adjust and then adjust back so quickly is a moot point. And I'm sure we could debate that for a long period of time. But it makes it very hard to be reflective and be thoughtful, because whilst you're being reflective and thoughtful, markets have already moved and it makes it harder to make different investment decisions during changing market conditions. And even if you go back to I was working during the 87 crash, there was plenty of time for investors to rethink their investment strategy post the 87 crash and actually introduce those ideas in portfolios. It was even true at the trough of 2009. So you didn't actually miss out on all the recovery if you didn't put all your ideas to work in the first month post the sort of spring lows in 2009. And I think that's making investment even more challenging today than it's ever been. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really great discussion. If listeners want to find you afterwards and see anything that you release and find your material, where can they find you? Yeah, so I post, as Dan said earlier in the recording, on LinkedIn almost every day, and people can see what I'm doing there. I've also been releasing some of the interviews we've been doing with fund managers on a Podbean podcasting site, and you can find me there. It's called Investment Thinking, because hopefully that's what these managers are talking to me about. And obviously, through St. James's Place, one can access a lot of the insights and observations that we're making as an organization, and I obviously contribute to that as well. Cool. We'll, we'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes. And as someone who listeners probably know, I spend far too much time on LinkedIn. I can certainly confirm that Chris has quite the following these days on LinkedIn. So that's going really well, isn't it? Yeah, I'm enjoying it. It makes me think. It makes me keep up to date with what's going on markets. The challenge is that it's very hard to move away from it. It's a bit of a narcotic, I have to say. <laughs> yes, there is that, isn't there? I think Dan suffers from that too. <laughs> so anyway, Chris, got any recommendations for the listeners in terms of books, podcasts, those sort of things? Well, I listen to a huge number of podcasts on a daily basis, things like the New York Times, the Daily, and some of the associated podcasts. I try and listen to stuff that's sort of slightly unusual. So things like The Memory Palace and 99% Invisible, a couple of podcasts I love listening to because they're very quirky, different stories, and it's a sort of refreshing 
to think and consider them when one's just being deluged with financial information on a day-to-day basis. So I'd highly recommend those. Fantastic. And finally, from us, Chris, what would you say is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Well, I think it probably goes back to a comment that I was making earlier, Mary, the fund manager who said how difficult investment is, even if you've been in markets for 40 years plus. So the title of his book, and it's a chap called Richard Oldfield, is simple but not easy. Investment should be incredibly simple. It should be easy to say, well, that company is cheap and it over the longer term will go up. But boy, oh boy, it's hard to get it right. Boy, oh boy, so many people get found out. And I think if there's one thing I've learned is that the moment you think you know a bit, that should be the time at which you recognize you know very little. Yes, there's a really good quote on that. I think it's something like true knowledge is knowing the extent of one's ignorance or something like that. Yes, I'm really glad that there's so many people who are far more erudite than I can come up with these great quotes. I wish I could be like that. <laughs> yes, a simple but not easy is a great one as well. Now, I didn't realise that was actually a book, but that's a little phrase I've come across a few times. Well, it just sums it up brilliantly, doesn't it? So great. Okay, well, I think that's a great note to finish on, Chris. Thanks again so much for your time. It's been a really great conversation. Love talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much to both of you. Thanks, Chris. That's it from us for today. We really hope you've enjoyed the episode. As ever, if you like what you hear, please do leave us a review and please subscribe. But for now, thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.